This is the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. We come to you in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, the Son of the Most High Yahweh. Tune in each week to hear teachings directly from Scripture, focused upon believing in the Father, His Son, and the holy and righteous law of our Creator. At the end of this broadcast, we will give you the web address whereby you may contact us for further scriptural information. Well, a good evening to you. This is Brother Matthew, and I'm very excited to probably finish up our four-part series on the personal proper name of the Father and the Son, showing that they have two different names, Yahweh for the Father and Yeshua for the Son, because they are two different persons. We've been going through the manuscripts early on in the series, and then for the past couple of weeks, we've been dealing with passages in the Bible that oneness proponents, or sometimes one-name proponents, try to use in attempt to say that the Father and the Son have the exact same personal proper name, that when Christ walked the earth, or that when the Messiah walked the earth, his name was Yahweh. You have this in denominational Christianity like in Pentecostalism where they believe that Jesus is the name of the Father and the Son. And then in the sacred name movement, you have people that believe that the name Yahweh is the name of the Father and the Son, or at least that the Son contains the name Yah in his name. So we've been going over those texts, and we ended last week on Philippians 2. And we were talking about how that Philippians 2, and I would encourage you to go read it and begin at verse 1. Because in verse 1, you'll see where Paul is, through verses 1 through 4, exhorting the Philippian Christians to be humble and not to do anything out of rivalry or conceit, but look at their brothers as more important than themselves. And then he says in verse 5, let the mind that was in Christ... The Christ Yeshua, the human being, the man from Nazareth, let the mind that was in him as a man be in you. Then he goes through a list of things. And he talks about how that Yeshua humbled himself. And even though he was the son of Yahweh, he was in the form of Yahweh, the Morphe in the Greek, he did not regard equality with Yahweh something to grasp at. But instead he emptied himself and he took upon himself the form of a slave. And it goes on to talk about, I'm quoting from memory, but it goes on to talk about he made himself of no reputation. And then he humbled himself even to the point of death. That's talking about the death on the cross or the torture state. And then it says Yahweh highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. The point that I brought out last week and that I'm bringing out again for emphasis this week is that the name above every name that was given to Christ was not given to him until after his death and resurrection when he was about 33 years old. So Philippians 2 is not talking about the name that was given to him back in Matthew 121 where Yahweh the Father commissioned the angel Gabriel to give Miriam and Joseph's son this name, Yeshua, he will save. That's not what Philippians 2 is talking about. Philippians 2 is talking about something different than that. A name above every name that was given to Yeshua after his resurrection. 
Now, Philippians 2.9 says that because of all of Yeshua's life of extreme humility, the Almighty highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. Verse 10 tells us that at the name of Yeshua, that's what the text actually says, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. Now, does this mean when we read that text like it is written that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, does that mean that Yahweh will bow to Yeshua or that Yahweh's name is not above every name because the text uses the name Yeshua? Is that what Philippians 2 means? And the answer should be obvious. Of course not. Of course it doesn't mean that. Yahweh and his name are excluded from the equation in Philippians 2, 9 through 10. That's not the subject. Yahweh is not being compared to Yeshua. Yeshua is being compared to every other human being that has ever lived. This should be obvious because in Philippians 2, 9 through 10, it is Yahweh who highly exalts Yeshua. So Yahweh's not being compared to Yeshua in Philippians 2. He's the one doing the exaltation. This is very similar to another writing of Paul the Apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 27. And I would encourage you to study that passage, 1 Corinthians 15, right around verse 27, verses before and after, because it talks about how that Yahweh puts everything under Yeshua's feet. And Paul goes on to explain that when it says everything, it's obvious that he, Yahweh, who puts everything under him, Yeshua, is the exception. That's the point Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 15, 27. In other words, it should go without saying that Yahweh is not one of the everythings that is put under the feet of Yeshua. And the same is the case in Philippians 2, 9 through 10. It is Yahweh that is exalting Yeshua. It is Yahweh that is giving Yeshua the name above every name. And none of this means that Yeshua is above Yahweh, nor that his name is above Yahweh's name. That's not the point of the text. It should be obvious that Yahweh is the exception. So what does it mean for Yahweh to give him, that is the Messiah, the name above every name after his resurrection? What does that mean? We've got to get out of the habit of thinking that every time we see the word name or onoma in the Greek, that it just means letters. It doesn't always mean that. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it it's more than letters, obviously, all the time. But sometimes it's talking about a literal name, like my name is Matthew. Matthew one twenty one. his name is Yeshua. What does this passage mean, though? Does name always mean just a literal name? Or is there more to certain texts? And maybe we can't see the more to these texts because we're so traditionalized with previous denomination affiliation and we're not reading the Bible as we should all the time with fresh eyes, looking at the contextual meaning, looking at the cultural meaning, trying to see what it meant in its original context, in its original form. What does this mean? Well, seeing that Philippians 2 says that this name is Yeshua in verse 10, it certainly doesn't mean that the Messiah has a name that is not shared by any other person in the world. That's not what this text means. We might, with our American mindset, 
or our modern day understanding think, well, if Yeshua has the name above every name, it must mean that he must have a name that nobody else has. That's how we think. But obviously that's not what it means because the text says that at the name of Yeshua, every knee will bow. It refers to that as the name above every name. But yet we know there were many men named Yeshua or Yehoshua through the scriptures. So that must not be what it means. It must not mean he's got a name different from everybody else. That's not what it means. I believe that Paul is more likely writing about Yeshua's reputation, who he is, what he stands for. Just like in Proverbs where it says, a good name is to be desired above silver and gold. That's not just talking about, I'll use myself for example, my name, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, being above silver and gold. It's talking about if I work for people and I do them a good job and I treat them fairly and I use just weights and measures and I'm consistent in how I interact financially, in honesty and in integrity, people will talk about my work and my name will have a good reputation. As a matter of fact, I might have the name above every name in my city. People might hear my name and say, well, he's got a great reputation. You need to hire him to do the work for you. And that's just an illustration. I think that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians chapter 2. And this is why Paul goes on to say in Philippians 2.11 that every tongue confesses Yeshua is the Messiah to the glory of Yahweh the Father. See, the Father gets glory out of our confession about who Yeshua is. Yeshua is the anointed one, the Messiah, of Father Yahweh. And this is what Paul means when he writes that Yahweh gave the Messiah the name above every name. Paul is not saying that Yahweh gave the Messiah the name Yahweh after his resurrection. That's not what it's talking about. He's rather saying after his resurrection, Yeshua received the greatest name, meaning in this context, the greatest reputation of all men. He finished the work that Yahweh gave him to do upon the earth. He went through every trial as an overcomer. He conquered every temptation as an overcomer. He never sinned. No guile was found in his mouth. He made himself of no reputation. He was the perfect example of a humble servant that looked at everyone else as better than himself, even though he was better than everyone else. And therefore, because of that and his obedience to death even, on the cross, a brutal death it was. Yahweh resurrected him, and now he's been given the name above every name. Therefore, when we speak the name of Yeshua, Yeshua of Nazareth, Yeshua the Messiah, he's got the greatest name, the greatest reputation of all the people that have ever been born on the face of the earth. That's what Philippians 2 is talking about. Now, some people try to parallel Isaiah 45, 23 through 24, with Philippians 2, 10 through 11. Paul does apply portions of Isaiah 45, verse 23, to Yeshua 
in Philippians 2, 10 through 11. It's not a direct quotation, but he does apply portions of that text to Yeshua in Philippians 2. That does not mean that Paul is applying the name Yahweh to Yeshua. That's not what it means. A passage like John 5.23 helps us to understand what's going on here. John 5.23 teaches us if we do not honor the Son, by extension, we do not honor the Father. And in John 15.23, it says, If you hate the Son, you hate the Father, and that is by extension. It's just like if I was to send my first begotten son, Benjamin, to somebody's house and they spat on him and they pulled his hair out and they beat him and he came back and his nose was bloody. And I said, what did you do, son? He said, I I didn't do anything, Dad. They just didn't like me. They didn't like what I stood for. They didn't like the truth. They didn't like the man of Yahweh that I was. Well, if they rejected Benjamin, my son, then they automatically rejected me. Why? Because I was the one that sent my son. It's the same thing with Yahweh and Yeshua. When you reject the Son, you reject the Father because the Father is the one who commissioned and sent Him. Not because He is the Father. That doesn't even make sense when you read the passage. It's because the Father is the one who sent Him. It's just like when Yeshua sent out His disciples to the different cities. Yeshua told His disciples, if the people accept you, then they accept Me. But if they reject you, then they reject me. That doesn't mean that all the disciples are some kind of mode or manifestation or little Yeshua's running around. What it means is they've been delegated authority and therefore because they've been commissioned by the Messiah, Yeshua, their exception or rejection is equivalent with accepting or rejecting Christ. And so this is how we're to understand the application of Isaiah 45 to Yeshua in Philippians chapter 2. I want you to notice that what is sworn in Isaiah 45, if you read that, verses 23 through 24, what is sworn there is not what is sworn in Philippians 2, where every tongue shall confess or swear that Yeshua is master, or in the Greek it's kurios, which means a ruler or a master. And that same word kurios is applied to men in several other verses, one such as in John 12, verse 21. When you see the Greek word kurios, it does not automatically mean the name Yahweh. Sometimes when the Greek New Testament directly quotes a passage in the Old Testament that uses the name Yahweh, it applies. Not here, though. Philippians 2 is not a direct quote of Isaiah 45. Now, we took a lot of time on Philippians 2, I love explaining it. I can't help but get excited when I do. And we've got two more passages to get to, and I'm trying to make this the last part in the series. If I cannot get through it, we'll continue this next week. This next passage can be a doozy, and I want to take my time with it, so I'm not going to get in a hurry. But it's Matthew 28, verse 19. Now, this is a very popular passage because when I was growing up, I grew up in the Pentecostal church, and there was a big debate between Oneness Pentecostals and Trinitarians. Oneness Pentecostals believe that God is one person that manifests himself in three primary modes, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Trinitarians believe that God is three persons and one being, and that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not just modes or manifestations, but they are 
persons or personalities. So there's a difference there between Oneness Pentecostals and classic Trinitarians. I actually don't agree with either form of theology. Um, I do believe in what's called biblical Unitarianism. And basically put, that's the teaching that says that Yahweh the Father is the hierarchy. He is the top. He's the Almighty all by himself. And about 2,000 years ago approximately, by his Holy Spirit, which he is Spirit, John 4.24, he miraculously caused a woman to conceive. She was betrothed to Joseph. Her name is Miriam. But she had not had intimate relations with a man. But yet she conceived a child in her womb miraculously, not defiling her virginity, in the, not in the sense that there was any sexual activity going on spiritually. I don't even like to say that, but I'm just trying to explain myself. But it was a miracle. Kind of like when Yahweh opened up Sarah's womb in Genesis, who was over the age of 90. That's not normal. Women that old at that time did not have babies. But Yahweh had to perform spiritual surgery on her womb, or physical surgery on her womb, to therefore allow Abraham, who was also, the Bible tells us, past his age of childbearing. Abraham was too old too. It wasn't just the woman. If you read Genesis, Abraham said, I'm too old too. But, Yahweh allowed it to happen, but he had to intervene first. So miracle births are all through the Old Testament. It shouldn't surprise us when we get to the Gospel of Matthew and Luke that we see that Yeshua has a miracle birth, being the special man that he is. So about 2,000 years ago, Yahweh directly begat by his spirit this man and placed within this man the fullness of his spirit. And this, because of this, Yeshua is the son of Yahweh, and it's a very prestigious place, second in authority under Yahweh, especially after Yeshua went through his whole life and then was resurrected and now has taken his seat at the right hand of Father Yahweh. And so the father and son have a special relationship. Yeshua is the only begotten son. He's unique. There's no one like him. So that's kind of biblical Unitarianism in a nutshell. The father alone is the almighty, but yet he has this special son, that he begat directly, and he has chosen him to be the perfect vessel by which all those who put repentance and trust and faith in Yeshua can receive eternal life and peace with Father Yahweh um, that were formerly lost sheep. Now they can be found sheep. And so that's beautiful, and I don't want to get too much into that, but just a brief explanation. Well, Matthew 28 and 19 was argued by Oneness Pentecostals and Trinitarians because of the quote-unquote baptismal formula that is found in this text. What do you mean, Brother Matthew, baptismal formula? This sounds like some kind of magic or something like that. Well, no, it's not that. Matthew 28, 19 talks about, in the King James Version, baptizing people in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. Well, Trinitarians, when they baptize people, they say, I now baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Ghost. Oneness Pentecostals, though, say, I now baptize you in Jesus' name. Or some of them say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Pentecostals say that Matthew 28 and 19 is a command to do what Christ says, not to say what Christ says. So whereas the Trinitarians directly repeat the words of Christ in Matthew 28, 19, 
Oneness Pentecostals rather say the command is to do it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And since the word name is singular and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are modes or manifestations, the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus, as they see it in their minds, that's how we're going to baptize in Jesus' name. And then they go to like Acts 2.38 where it says in the King James Version, to baptize in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. So there's a big debate, and it's argued by people who promote that the Father and the Son have the exact same name in sacred name circles, that the Messiah's word in Matthew 28:19 promotes this, except it's not Jesus' name, it's the name Yah or Yahweh. Now, let me note that Matthew 28:19, as I've mentioned, mentions the Holy Spirit, but because these sermons are not directly related to the Holy Spirit, but rather to the Father and the Son, I'm not going to be dealing with the Holy Spirit in this series. Maybe I'll get to it at a later time. How are we to understand Yeshua's words to baptize in the name, singular, of the Father and of the Son? Does this teach that the Son's given name is Yahweh? Well, you should know by now, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that, and I don't believe that Matthew 28 and 19 teaches it, because that would contradict all of the manuscript evidence that we have for the name of the Messiah being Yeshua, as well as the definition of the Messiah's name given in Matthew 121. So what we need to do here is we need to love Matthew 28 and 19 but we need to seek to understand Matthew 28 and 19, not holding to our traditional mindset what we've been taught it means. But let's seek to understand what it originally meant, harmonizing it with the rest of the Bible. Now, hold on to your hats here. This might blow some people away. But I have come to understand the text as referring to two names rather than one. Now, you might be wondering how I can justify such an understanding, seeing that the word name is in the singular form rather than the plural form, names, in Matthew 28 and 19. And my answer to that is twofold, and I hope that you'll sit still and listen and study the explanation that I give. Well, first off, people generally focus upon the word name rather than the words and of in Matthew 28 and 19. What I mean is this. It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, but then it goes on to say, and of the Son. Now, the use of the words and of before the word Son can be taken to mean also the name of the Son. In other words, we should baptize people in the name of the Father and of the Son, i.e. and in the name of the Son. Now, let me explain this further with my second point. I believe you can understand two names just by reading what the text says there. But there's an example of how this takes place in another book, in the book of Genesis, where we are given the Hebrew singular form for name, which is the word Shem, but yet two names are in view. And the text that I speak of is Genesis 48, verse 16, where we read Joseph's words, quote, the angel which redeemed me from all evil blessed the lads 
and let my name be named on them, and the name, Shem, singular, of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. End of quote. I want you to notice that Joseph speaks of his own name being named upon the lads. That is Ephraim and Manasseh is who he's talking about. But then Joseph uses the singular word for name, which in the Hebrew is the word Shem. But he uses the word Shem to refer to two different names, Abraham and Isaac. Now, if you have a Hebrew interlinear, you can compare Genesis 48 verse 16 with Genesis 46 verse 8. Genesis 48 16 with Genesis 46 verse 8 in the Hebrew, you will notice that the Hebrew of 46 8 reads Shemim. That's plural, that's names. It does not read Shem in Genesis 46 8. Some English translations translate the word Shem as names, plural, in Genesis 48, 16, but they're wrong. They are incorrect. The King James Version, the American Standard Version, Young's Literal Translation, and the English Standard Version all translate it as name, singular, in Genesis 48, 16. Now, my New American Standard Bible that I have here in my office incorrectly translates the word Shem as names, plural, in Genesis 48.16, but it then gives a footnote beside the word names, and the footnote says literally name, period. It puts it in the singular form. Now, the reason they did that was because they obviously realized the Hebrew is singular, but it's used of two different names nonetheless, Abraham and Isaac. So we have in Genesis 48.16 a use of a singular Word, Shem, name, but yet it applies to Abraham and Isaac. And I believe that that's the best way to understand Matthew 28 19. Yeshua is teaching us to make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son. The name of the Father is Yahweh and the name of the Son is Yeshua. And this makes sense. When you read the totality of the book of Acts, it makes sense because the sinner has sinned against Yahweh. That's me and you. We've sinned against Yahweh's law, and thus we should call out to Yahweh in repentance. I'm sorry, Yahweh. Please forgive me. I repent of my sin. I confess that I've transgressed your law. I'm repenting. I'm calling out to you. The sinner should also confess the means of salvation that Yahweh hath sent, and that is Yahweh's son, Yeshua, the Messiah. And we see the Ethiopian eunuch doing this very thing in Acts 8, 36-38. The eunuch asked Philip, after seeing some water and being preached to by Philip, he said, what hinders me from being baptized? Philip responds and he says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. What did the eunuch then say? He proclaimed, I believe Yeshua the Messiah is the son of Yahweh. I want you to notice that the eunuch confessed Yeshua for who he is and he called out to Yahweh as well. So we cry out to Yahweh and notice too, and I'm going to have to take another part in this series to get in all of this, (laughs) 
But notice too that it's not the pastor or the preacher that's doing the baptism that's calling on this name or confessing Yeshua. It's the person. See, the Bible never talks about the preacher or the one doing the baptism having to say anything. But the person that is confessing and repenting, they call out to Yahweh. And it's more than just letters. It's they're calling out to the Creator and they're repenting of their sin. And it's more than just letters when they confess Yeshua. They're confessing the Savior, the one that Yahweh sent to be the Savior of the world, 1 John 4, 14. That's what happens all throughout the book of Acts. This is why in Acts 2.38, where it says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Yeshua the Messiah for the remission of sin. You believe that with your heart. And what that means is, is that the sinner that repents also gets baptized confessing himself. Not the preacher that baptizes him. He, the sinner, confesses himself I've sinned, Yahweh, I call out to you. I call upon your name, Joel 2.32. I want to be delivered and I confess Yeshua is the Messiah to your glory and I believe in him with all of my heart. That's what Matthew 28 and 19 is commanding us to do. But I've run out of time, so we're going to have to move in to another part next week. May Yahweh bless you in your studies. Listen for the contact info. I love you and I appreciate you. Have a great evening. You've been listening to the Ministers of the New Covenant radio broadcast. Our website is ministersnewcovenant.org. That's ministersnewcovenant.org. Please visit our website where you will find hundreds of audio sermons as well as videos, books, and articles explaining various doctrines in the scriptural faith. For questions, you can also call 678-347-6240. That's 678-347-6240. Thanks for listening, and according to His will, may Yahweh richly bless.